Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam O'Cronin, and today we're discussing the future of supersonic technology. That means we'll get into how supersonic air travel, supersonic automobiles, and of course, supersonic missiles and weaponry are evolving now and in the future. And let's start with a big announcement, which is the reason we're addressing this topic right now. And that is that Boom Supersonic, an American company, is set to unveil the first supersonic airliner in over 50 years. They're unveiling this new model on October 2020. And this is a really big deal. And the reason it's a big deal is because progress has really stalled with air travel since the 747 aircraft in the 1970s. And in fact, flight time has actually gotten longer. So for instance, it used to take a flight from New York to Houston two hours and 37 minutes. Now it takes three hours and 50 minutes. And part of that is because airline companies optimize for cost savings and fuel efficiency. But another big part of it is just lack of innovation. You know, a lot of these airlines have really taken the more safe bet, like Airbus and Boeing have really just done small, slight iterations and really cosmetic tweaks on airplanes since the 747, rather than really re-engineer and reimagine what an airline could be. So what's so exciting about Boom Supersonic is that they're reimagining what air travel can be in a similar way as how SpaceX reimagined what space travel can be. And the parallels between space travel and air travel are really striking. So 1969 was the year that humanity landed a man on the moon. That was also the year that the first successful supersonic airline company, Concorde, took its first flight. So if you can imagine back to that time, it felt like there was just an unprecedented level of innovation and efficiency that was going to explode in the coming years. Unfortunately, after 27 years of flight, Concorde retired all of its aircrafts in 2003. So this brings to the next question, which is why has progress stalled so much in both air travel and space travel? And part of the reason is that it's really hard to build an effective supersonic aircraft. When you're traveling at that high of a speed, there's a couple issues you have to address. One is the issue of a sonic boom. So when you go faster than the speed of sound, your aircraft, or if it's a gun, the bullet, or whatever it is, is going to create a huge boom that not only is really loud and will probably wake up whoever is sleeping nearby, it also could create some minor structural damage. Uh, buildings and windows could break, for instance. So because of this, America actually set a speed limit for how fast planes could fly over land, which really limited the possibilities of supersonic airliners. Now, Concorde was only able to fly over water, so they could do transatlantic flights, uh, but they couldn't do flights uh, over the continental US, for instance. And so because they had such a limited market, the costs were really expensive. So for instance, to fly from New York to London on Concorde would cost about $20,000 uh, in, today to, in today's dollars. Another reason that Concorde ended operations is because there was a highly publicized crash of Air France Flight 4590 in which all passengers on board died. And it wasn't really the result of an engineering mistake for the supersonic aircraft. It was more because the aircraft hit debris as it was taking off, which resulted in the crash. 
But even still, that highly publicized crash combined with just how expensive supersonic travel was at the time was enough to sway public opinion away from supersonic technology. And that's why since 2003, there have been no operational supersonic airlines. That's about to change. We are about to see a massive era of progress in air travel, just like we're seeing that uh, with space travel with SpaceX. So let's talk a little bit about some of the innovations that are happening now with Boom Supersonic and what we can expect in the future. When we think about the innovations that have occurred since 2003, many of the innovations have been in the computer space and computer simulations and modeling and graphics. And that have really allowed the Boom Supersonics team to create dramatically better aerodynamics because they can try out a bunch of different models for how to structure the aircraft and then simulate how well those models will fly through air. And then once they're ready, only then would they use a wind tunnel to actually test if what they see in real life is the same as what they see in the computer model. There have also been a lot of progress, a lot of progress made in the material science space. So now we have carbon fiber composites, which are lighter and stronger than any sort of metal alloys we used in the past. It also makes them indetectable by most traditional radar systems. And this has been a big boon for supersonic air travel. Another bit of progress has been the ability to build better jet engines. So we now know how to build more fuel efficient jet engines, also quieter jet engines. So you don't have that same problem of the supersonic boom. They've found ways to make it a thump instead of a boom. And another tactic they use is actually directing the supersonic boom up towards the stratosphere rather than down towards where there's people and homes, you know, maybe sleeping. And also the environmental impact has been greatly reduced. And that has been the result of more fuel efficiency, which is also good for the environment. So all of this results in a better quality aircraft that is also less expensive, right? So whereas it used to cost $20,000 to fly from New York to London on the Concorde supersonic aircraft, now with boom supersonic they're estimating it'll cost only five thousand dollars and you get there in half the time so if it's important for you to spend your time wisely and maybe if you have a business meeting in london and you want to make it home that same night to your family you can now do that with supersonic travel and five thousand dollars is a lot of money even still but that's on par with business class travel with what the price is today so there's already an established market for that and then the final thing I'll say as far as innovations is that we are in a fully digital control system with Boom Supersonic. We are no longer in the analog phase. So if you've ever seen like the aircraft or the spacecraft that brought humanity to the moon, it's all of these analog knobs and dials and you have to remember what each one is and there's this whole labeling system. Whereas if you look at a SpaceX rocket, it's like, a t it's like an iPad. You basically have a really intuitive user interface that you can just tap on what you need. It's super like self-explanatory. And this is the same sort of progress we're making in supersonic air travel. So we really are modernizing this technology for the digital age. In addition to supersonic aircraft, there have also been some steps taken to build supersonic automobiles. So the current record for the fastest automobile ever 
was an automobile driven by Andy Green, which reached the speed of 763 miles per hour in 1997. Now, that is really close to the speed of sound. So for reference, the speed of sound is 767 miles per hour. So they were only four miles per hour short of breaking the sound barrier. Now, that was in 1997. Now, we are doing a similar thing as what we talked about with airlines and spaceships, and we are creating a digital version of a supersonic car. So this company, Bloodhound LSR, is a UK-based company, and they have an ambitious project to build a vehicle capable of driving 1,000 miles per hour or more. And interestingly, they have the same guy Andy Green in the driver's seat of their new vehicle, the same guy who set the original record. So their first record, or the first goal is to beat the current record uh, set by Andy Green in 1997. Then their next big goal is to exceed 1,000 miles per hour. Now this may be less practical than supersonic aircraft, but it does have other applications. Like you could imagine there could be some supersonic train system or maybe one day supersonic underground cars, uh, similar to the Boring Company. So it's really exciting to see that we're making progress in so many areas when there's been stagnation for so long in these areas. Now let's talk about perhaps the most interesting aspect of supersonic technology, which is supersonic weapons and missiles. So since the dawn of the Cold War, mutually assured destruction has been the rule, which essentially means any nuclear power knows that if they were to launch a nuclear strike on another nuclear power, both nuclear powers would be destroyed. Therefore, it doesn't make sense for the U.S. to go to war with Russia or for China to go to war with the U.S., or for any power that has nuclear weapons to go to war with one another. Now, this has been called the Red Queen, which is sort of this race where you always have equally effective offensive systems and equally effective defensive systems. However, this is now breaking down with supersonic technology. So in the past, we had ICBMs, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, and these used to be really effective and they actually did reach the uh, you know they were supersonic because once they they get launched up and then they curve down when they're curving down into the atmosphere they go faster than the speed of sound but they're really predictable because they create this long arch like a basketball shot so it's really easy to calculate how to intercept intercept these missiles the difference with supersonic missiles is that they literally ride the wave of their sonic boom and they spin around in all of these random ways. So it's almost, it is currently impossible to predict exactly where they're going to be. And therefore it's impossible to intercept them in the same way that we can intercept uh, ICBMs. So in 2018, China released a hypersonic cruise missile called King Kong to the wave rider missile and this achieved Mach 6, which is six times the speed of sound. So this King Kong Wave Rider hypersonic cruise missile is able to bob and weave through the atmosphere, surfing on its own shock waves. And this maneuverability is able to break through any current generation anti-missile defense system, including that of the U.S. 
And China has referred to this as a, quote, assassin's mace, which is a folklore term for a weapon that gives an advantage against a better armed foe. Now, Russia has also introduced hypersonic missiles, although they are much more secretive about their programs. So it's hard to know exactly how far along they are and how much they're just sort of, you know, beating their their chest and trying to seem like, you know, they've really made some big advancements. But it's clear China has made some incredible advancements. For instance, China has even published a lot of its research to show how prestigious it is in the supersonic technology space and to really establish themselves as an innovator in the field. So whereas it used to be the case that China would steal a lot of America's military tech and copy it, now they seem to be the ones innovating in the supersonic uh, technology space. So for instance, they just published a paper showing that rather than tracking the actual spacecraft on a radar, which is really difficult now since they're made of carbon fiber and they're hard to detect, you could actually track them based on the plume of ionized gas or plasma that's left as a trail from the hypersonic vehicle. So it's, it's interesting that China is willing to publish their findings as sort of a way of establishing themselves as the leader in this space. Now, since the U.S. has found out about this hypersonic weapons capabilities of China in 2018, the Department of Defense has been pouring $1 billion a year into hypersonic research. Now, we are finally waking up to the reality that this is an important space, and if we want to maintain some level of mutually assured destruction and to actually be able to defend ourselves against these missiles, we will need to master the art of hypersonic travel. However, the U.S. has been more like Russia in that we've been more secretive about our findings, which has made it a little more difficult to collaborate internationally. And it's unclear where the red lines are. So, for instance, Taiwan is one really interesting place where China doesn't recognize Taiwan's independence. And Taiwan is a really important place because 70% of all microchips and nanochips are built in Taiwan. So, you know, Apple has now started to create some of their own chips in other places, but the vast majority of computer chips, which are really the fundamental foundation for our technological society, are built in Taiwan. So let's say China was to invade or annex Taiwan, would that be a case in which the U.S. would respond? And if so, how confidently could the U.S. respond knowing that we don't have the same level of hypersonic technology that China has. And, you know, it's very unlikely that China would ever launch a strike against the U.S. mainland. But it's not so crazy to think that if we postured ourselves in an aggressive way in the South China Sea or in Taiwan, that they may hit some of our military targets in the Pacific. So this is a very uh, bleeding edge space of innovation. And to a large extent, supersonic and hypersonic technology combined with cybersecurity and being able to gather enough data with satellites and other sensors around the world and above the world, that's what's going to determine military dominance in the future. Now this brings us to the question of what is the appropriate response for America given what we know about the current state of technology. Now it seems like there's really one of two paths. One is 
we continue to posture aggressively and we continue to escalate and that may lead to an inevitable hot conflict between the US and China or we could continue to innovate in a commercial and economic sense and maybe in some defensive in some defensive ways but we could de-escalate offensively and i'm a big believer in that we should de-escalate our offensive measures and really focus on our defensive measures because i think that makes the world a safer place and it also limits the room for error that there always is when you have these hair trigger alerts with weapons as powerful as nuclear weapons so for instance our ICBM program is really not a good defensive system because these are known areas where we have these standing missiles that shoot these very predictable projectiles that can easily be intercepted from the enemy. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to have these ICBMs. And it really creates an, a dangerous game theory where there's one scenario from this uh, nuclear expert where he talks about Imagine if there was a hack or just simply a glitch in our system of identifying potential incoming missiles. And so at 1 a.m. or in the middle of the night, the president gets woken up and says, Mr. President, we have just seen in our systems that a nuclear missile has been launched and it's coming towards us. Should we launch a retaliatory, a retaliatory strike? We have five minutes to decide or 10 minutes to decide. Now that's not enough time to really gather more high quality information or to seek the counsel of other people like Congress. It's only enough time to make a groggy decision depending on you know who the president is and what his predilections are in the moment. And this option only exists because we have first strike weapons like ICBMs, which like we said earlier, aren't even effective because they can easily be intercepted. So what this nuclear expert has argued is that we should publicly dismantle our ICBMs and say definitively to the world, we will not launch a first strike against any country, no matter what they do. We will only launch defensive strikes if someone strikes us first. And this actually is a really effective strategy because then there's less room for error, there's less room for a cyber hack or for a glitch in the system and we can still defend ourselves because you can use aircraft and submarines to deliver nuclear weapons and aircraft and submarines are always moving around so they're not known targets and we can have many of them so that's a much safer way for us to posture our defenses while continuing to innovate in other defensive measures and I think really it's super unlikely that any major world power would launch a nuclear strike against another world power knowingly. It is much more likely that there's either some rogue actor, like some you know nut job who's in some administration, whether it's the US or China or Russia or any other power, or some terrorist group potentially, or it's just some glitch or, or a hack. So I think we really need to minimize those possibilities while, of course, uh, preparing our defenses as much as possible. And the last thing I'll say before we get into the future scenarios is that it's so clear now that the future of warfare and the future of defense is going to come down to artificial intelligence and cybersecurity prowess, combined with the ability for AI to control hardware, 
like supersonic missiles, supersonic defense systems. I think it's time that we really reassess what's important to us and we de-escalate our offensive forces while really modernizing our defensive forces and our ability to know what's going on in all areas and respond effectively. Now let's take a quick break and then get into our future scenarios. Now let's talk about the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario in my mind is autonomous hypersonic weapons. This is a nightmare scenario for a few reasons. One is that it lends itself to a computer glitch, a hack, or a runaway AI scenario where you have these autonomous hypersonic missiles that no one is able to defend against that could potentially wreak havoc. And, you know, a glitch is something that's pretty innocuous. Maybe there's some bug in the software that could happen. It could also be hacked. I mean, all of these systems are hackable if you know enough about how they're built. And also runaway AI is something that Elon Musk and Nick Bostrom and a lot of other people have talked about. And for that reason, it is crucial that we do not develop autonomous weapons that potentially could become super intelligent. Another bad scenario, but maybe not as nightmarish as the runaway AI autonomous hypersonic missile scenario, is a scenario in which China continues to outpace the U.S. and that the U.S.'s military hegemony recedes and China becomes the de facto world power. And, you know, the people of China, I think, are very respectable, especially Hong Kongers and how they've fought for their democracy. But the Chinese Communist Party has been so oppressive. And just recently, Hong Kongers who hold up a blank piece of paper in a TikTok video or anywhere else have been being put in jail just for holding up a blank piece of paper, which is their way of saying, I'm not allowed to say what I actually think. So the notion of having a world under the dominance of China is absolutely terrifying to me. And I think also if you have less people able to travel to other places in the world, then you're going to have people who have less of a global mentality. And it'll be easier for nationalism to rise and for fear of other to rise. So for that reason, I think it's really important that we have cheap, quick, effective and efficient air travel between different countries and that people actually go and travel to those other countries to see what they're like. You know, Warren Buffett famously did not invest in the airlines even after their stock plummeted after COVID because they're so saddled with debt and they've gone so long without innovating that they're really not great companies to invest in. It's like their best days are behind them. So my hope is that with Boom, Supersonic and other companies, we will now create a real foundation for progress in the years to come. Let's talk about the best case scenario. Best case scenario. The best case scenario for supersonic air travel is that, according to the CEO of Boom Supersonic, we one day achieve the ability to fly anywhere in the world in four hours and for a hundred bucks. Now that would be an incredible accomplishment. We could literally cut the time in half to travel anywhere in the world and seriously lower our costs while also lowering the environmental impact with clean and fuel efficient systems. 
the best case scenario for supersonic weapons is that the U.S. and other countries develop supersonic defense systems so that we can reinstate the Red Queen so that we now have mutually assured destruction again and there isn't a mismatch in offensive weapons versus defensive weapons. Now, it's unclear if we will ever truly get back to that match because offensive weapons have just gotten so much more devastating and effective than defensive weapons. But in the best case scenario, we reinstate that mutually assured destruction. I would also say in our best case scenario, America publicly dismantles our ICBM program and denounces first strikes uh, on a nuclear level. And I think that will hopefully stop this new arms race and prevent the likelihood of there being some glitch or some rogue actor or some hack that could result in a nuclear winter. I would also say that in the best case, we continue to innovate and we create a foundation for real technological progress here in America and we stop sort of resting on our laurels and we start to have a more dynamic entrepreneurial mindset. So there are more companies like Boom Supersonic and SpaceX that are innovating in these areas. Now let's talk about the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. The most likely scenario when you look at the broad trends is that progress will be made. We are now making serious progress in air travel, in space travel, in automobile travel. Elon Musk recently said that he expects we will reach level five full autonomy for his Tesla vehicles by the end of the year. And this is incredible. I mean, this is progress that we haven't seen in 50 years. I mean, they've just like how with aircraft and with space rocket ships, we have not been making progress. We haven't been making progress with cars either. We still have been using the same combustion engines basically until Elon Musk and Tesla came along. So it does seem without a doubt we are going to make serious progress in the future. Now the question that is most vital is what's going to happen as a result of America continuing to make progress, China continuing to make progress, and the Cold War that may and may already be in place uh, by some people's opinion in the future. So it's hard to say really what's going to happen there. I think it's very unlikely that China or the U.S. attacks one another directly. But I think it is somewhat likely that there's a rogue actor in either state or there's some proxy battles or more of like a Cold War scenario than a hot war scenario. But still, I mean, this could be a seriously detrimental economic and information war between the two global powers right now. And it's hard to see where that's going to end. But I, I hope that it ends with some sort of path to peace. So to summarize my most likely scenario, I would say that whichever country develops superior artificial intelligence and has superior ability to collect data through satellites in space and other sensors will be the dominant force. That could be China, that could be the US, could be some other country, could be India. So we'll have to see what happens, but I really believe that whoever is far superior on a cybersecurity and AI level will become the dominant power. And supersonic technology is going to be really important 
as the means by which AI systems control both our defense and our offense. And I hope that we move towards a de-escalation of the offense and a ramping up of the defense. And in general, that we just are more wise about where we invest our dollars. I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.